You may be seated. Mike's sermon on Sunday was all about what he called the counterintuitive Christian life. And he kind of gave that a few different definitions or ways of thinking about counterintuitive. It's contrary to our initial reaction, contrary to our gut reaction, you might say. And there are a lot of elements in the Acts story that are counterintuitive, right? I mean, he pointed out a ton of them. There's the whole idea that the Philippian jailer just completely does a 180 and starts washing their wounds and and feeding them. Um, There's the fact that Paul and Silas are in prison at midnight singing and praying rather than just kind of grumbling and complaining about their plight. I wish Mike had pressed a little bit more into kind of our initial gut reaction, at least to make me feel a little better, right? Because if, if you're one of these prisoners in jail and you hear Paul and Silas singing, it's midnight. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Shut up! It's mid- I'm trying to sleep here. I'm in very uncomfortable conditions. You know, when, when you're suffering and another person's suffering with you, but they have a good attitude and you have a bad attitude, aren't you just kind of annoyed with them, right? It's like, why are you so happy? Why, what's, what's wrong with you? Or maybe when the chains fall off and the prison doors swing open, right? I mean, it's obviously a miracle. And so if I'm Paul or Silas or any one of those people in jail, never been in jail, don't think I will be, but who knows? I mean, you know, never say never. But you know what, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing immediately when those chains fall off, miraculously, right? The handcuffs come off and your door swings open. You are getting the heck out of Dodge, right? Going as fast as you can for an exit. And that's not what they do. And not only Paul and Silas... But everyone with them, that's something that's so amazing about this story. Paul and Silas, sure, they're, they're apostles, they're Christians, you know, you might expect them to do this. But somehow the, the power of their witness is such that even the other prisoners are kind of captivated by what's going on. And they just, they have to hear about why Paul and Silas are acting this way. It's important to recognize that this is not a one-off story in Acts. This is rather a pattern in the book of Acts, about how the early disciples lived and acted out their faith. It just so happens that in the daily office and evening prayer, the New Testament lesson is from the Acts of the Apostles. It's been that for the past week and a half or so. And here's a a bit of the pattern in Acts of all these counterintuitive things that Christians are, are doing. So Acts 5, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Or in Acts 7, the stoning of Stephen. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. He died. How about Saul's conversion? This Radical, maybe the most radical of conversion stories, where Paul goes from being the primary persecutor of the church, who everyone in the early church knows by reputation and really takes a long time to trust because they know how zealously he persecuted them and their leaders, and he becomes the greatest apostle that the church has ever seen. Or finally, Acts 13. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off of their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and his companions, or the early Christian missionaries 
as they're being chased from place to place, right? As they're being thrown in jail and some of them are being killed and some of them are being chased out of town. And this happens all over the books of Acts. It's, it's counterintuitive. They're not looking down in de- depression or despair. They're not looking around and saying, who's going to stand up for us and, you know, punch the Romans in the mouth or the Jews in the mouth or whoever's going to, who's going to come to our aid? They just slowly, calmly shake the dust off their feet, go to the next town, and are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And this isn't just a pattern in the book of Acts. It's actually a pattern throughout all of church history. Maybe not a very frequent one, but it's still a pattern because that's why we have saints. That's why some of our saints are called martyrs. I was reminded of a very recent episode of martyrdom that is kind of famous nowadays. Um, through a podcast I was listening to just a couple days ago. There's a book by a German investigative journalist uh, called The 21. It's about those 21 martyrs who were killed by ISIS. They were all, 20 of them were Coptic. They were Coptic Christians. Here's a, a reminder of that event from Wikipedia, that ever reliable source. On the 12th of February, 2015, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL, or ISIS, released a report on their online magazine, Dabiq, showing photos of 21 Egyptian Coptic Christian construction workers that they had kidnapped in the city of Sirte, Libya, and whom they threatened to kill. On 15th February, 2015, three days later, a five-minute video was published showing the beheading of the captives on a beach along the southern Mediterranean coast. A caption in the video called the captives, quote, people of the cross, followers of a hostile Egyptian church. In the video, the leader was dressed in camouflage while the other terrorists were dressed in black. The victims were all dressed in orange jumpsuits, as in many previous ISIL videos. The leader declares in North American English, this is what he says on the video, O people, recently you've seen us on the hills of Al-Sham, greater Syria, and on Dabiq's plain, chopping off the heads that had been carrying the cross delusion for a long time, filled with spite against Islam and Muslims. And today we are sending another message. O crusaders, safety for you will be only wishes, especially when you're fighting us all together. Therefore, we will fight you all together until the war lays down its burdens and Jesus, peace be upon him, will descend, breaking the cross, killing the swine. The sea you've hidden Sheikh Osama bin Laden's body in, we swear to Allah, we will mix it with your blood. That's the vitriol, the hate, the attitude that these 21 martyrs were receiving and under for three days until they were finally beheaded. And I I don't know what that experience was like, but um, those martyrs were quickly canonized in the Coptic church, acclaimed as martyrs because each one of them, down to a person, refused to recant the name of Christ and died for their faith. It's counterintuitive enough to be a martyr for your faith. And most of us cannot even dream of going that far for Jesus. Give up comfort creatures, creature comforts here and there, maybe, yes. But being a martyr for the faith is a whole different level of commitment. And yet that's not the most 
counterintuitive thing about this story in this book, the 21. Here's what I find one of the most amazing facts. Every family of those 21 martyrs essentially has an iPad in their living room with a full uncut version of the beheading. And they invite visitors in to come and watch that video, after which they pray and sing hymns to God, thanking God that their sons were worthy of martyrdom, that they were faithful witnesses to the gospel of Christ, that they refused to recant God and his truth. How is that even possible? How how can you as a parent show the video of your son being killed over and over again to visitors as they come to your house and afterwards all done, you pray and thank God that they were counted worthy of such a death. This is where it's important that the collect for this past Sunday, the Sunday after attention, take, the ascension, excuse me, takes what I call the Pentecostal turn. Did you notice the Pentecostal turn? Oh God, the King of glory, You've exalted your only son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before. This is what Jesus is saying about pretty much everything in the Christian life of salvation, essentially, when the rich young ruler has that story of him, you know, not wanting to leave his riches and Jesus says, well, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man into the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples and those in earshot are saying, well, then, Lord, I mean, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's only the gift of the Holy Spirit that can bring us into a place of living out the counterintuitive life of the Christian. And with him, it is indeed possible to lead the kinds of saintly lives we read about in newspapers and in biographies and in books. We may think it's impossible. We hear stories of martyrs, stories of saints, and the level of their faith, the level of their commitment, and say, well, that's just not for me. But that's simply, it's not true. It is possible. We've seen it happen. We continue to see it happen. And here may be one reason why we think it's impossible, because the answer to the question, how do I receive the Holy Spirit, is just as counterintuitive to the answer to the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. And we can look at the faith of martyrs and of saints and say, what what must I do to have that level of faith or that level of the Spirit? And think, well, there's got to be some secret club. There's got to be some degree in seminary. There's got to be some uh, level of holiness that I have to attain to first. And then God might reward me with enough of the Spirit to do that. And that's just not, it's not the case. What must I do to receive the Holy Spirit? It's the same answer. Believe in Jesus. And then, God, what must I do to to get more of the Holy Spirit, to, to increase in my faith, to to reach that level, hopefully, maybe of sainthood, of of being one person who is so committed to you that nothing else matters in the grand scheme of things. And it's the same simple counterintuitive answer. 
not go to seminary, not pay a certain amount of money to the church, not do a certain amount of good things for the church. It's simple. It's just ask. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so let's, let's ask right now together for just more of the Holy Spirit that we would grow in our faith and in our holiness by His power and take one step closer to a saint, saintly life. Pray with me. Almighty God, You gave Your servants the 21 martyrs, boldness, to confess the name of our Savior Jesus Christ before the rulers of this world and courage to die for their faith. Grant that we may always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us and to suffer gladly for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and grant us, God, more and more of your Holy Spirit and of faith that the stories we read in the book of Acts would come into reality in our own time. That the lives of the saints that we see in the history books would become a feature of our common life together. That we would grow more and more in the image and likeness of Jesus. And that as always happens in Acts through these sufferings, your church would grow. And people would come to Jesus. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.